when I started my first proper job, after graduation, that was with the bank. For as long as I remained at home with my parents, and until it was time to say goodbye to them and set off to start a family of my own. From that first day until the day that I left home, to go to work, I used to get myself ready. So you, can't, you couldn't go to work in your casuals. You had to dress formally. You work in the city, you have to dress for the city. Suited and booted, tie, all that. But there's one thing I always did as a habit, and I, was, I would always worship my parents before I left. So, what my mother used to do, after I, when I walked up to her and worshipped her and received her blessings, and I stand back up, she would adjust my tie to make sure that I was prim and proper. So as she blessed me to go forth, I don't mean in the sasana back then, and do the best I could, make the best day of my life happen. That is how she would prepare me to go out and serve the world. I couldn't help but think, as I walked into this room, and then worshipped the Buddha, and I stood back up, I adjusted myself, made sure that the robe was prim and proper. And if the Buddha could, I'm sure he would have done what my mother did back then made sure that I was presentable. He would have said, I have given you the Dhamma. Now let me make sure that you look presentable to those who you would go and serve. And then he would have said, you have my blessings, my child. Go forth and serve mankind. As I imagine the Buddha do the, the Buddha do that. This morning and every morning before I come and sit here, I've always thoroughly enjoyed that feeling. The feeling of when a parent, a mother or a father, gives their blessing wholeheartedly to their child and wishes for nothing more than their benefit, their well-being, their betterment, and to do the same to all others. I just thought I'd share that with you this morning. That is the smile that is on my face right now. <laughs> the smile of having received blessings from the Great Father, the Great Mother, our Father, he who sacrificed to help us all 
overcome the hurdles of sansara. Imagine being stuck in a cave for an unimaginably long time. Just imagine that for a hundred years, stuck in a cave with no one to show you the path out, no light to follow, no light at the end of a tunnel in pitch black darkness. And then for one man to have the courage, to have the valor, to have the gallant to step out and on behalf of not just himself, but of, on behalf of everyone, make that journey a trek that no one has ever made before, with no teacher to guide, with no path laid down to follow, no signposts saying, turn left here, dead end this way, none of that. To follow that path all alone, no one to guide, but plenty of people to say why it won't work, plenty of people to discourage, Plenty of people to say, it's just going to be a waste of time. What hope is there? Do you see any hope? Do you see any light? So why bother all that discouragement? And yet, to be resilient, to be strong. I can only imagine that the guiding light that he had in him was the compassion that he had towards all sentient beings. I can't imagine any other force that would have driven him forward. Wisdom would have guided him when he was at a junction. Do I turn left or do I turn right? But what kept him going was that compassion that he had, that loving kindness, as we know today. He is the fountain of, he is the epitome of that. He is the symbol of all that. So this is whom we bring our palms together to venerate. It is because of him today we can see the path to our deliverance. Often we forget how magnanimous his sacrifice, his dedication would have been. It's not a journey that he made on a single day. It's the end result of an uncountable number of steps, some small, some big, some heading the wrong direction. Sometimes he would have had to trace himself, his steps back time and time again until he was able to discover. See, unlike any other journey, the journey to Buddhahood is one that you know you've made once you've made it. With any other journey, you can have someone to guide you. You can have someone to tell you when you're making the wrong step or taking the wrong step. But the journey to Buddhahood is not like that. It's unlike any other journey. If it were possible to guide someone, then the destination of that journey is not Buddhahood. Such are the victories of our Sastranahasa. Such, such is what he was able to achieve. So as we come here today, it's important that we take a moment. Most of all, to recognize why we are here. Most of all, to make a pledge, take an oath to ourselves. The only thing that would delight him 
and nothing else would be that we as his children make every effort to follow the path that he so painstakingly found, discovered, and instructed us to do so. That is why I tell you, your presence here or your veneration is not just a veneration to an icon that is the Buddha, but more so, it ought to be a pledge, a pledge of allegiance to your own salvation, a promise to your own salvation, an oath to your own deliverance. That is the only offering that is worth. So with that in mind, before we continue, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the supremely enlightened one, the perfect one, the most magnificent one, the fully awakened one, our father, our guide, our teacher. Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse We have the clock today. So we can't do another clock sermon then, unfortunately. Ah, but we have an empty vessel. Did you see that? An empty vessel? Do you see an empty vessel? You see an empty vessel if you do. Because in your mind, you also have a full vessel. That's why you think this is an empty vessel. As a matter of fact, it is empty because it is a vessel. Or it can be empty because it's a vessel for you. And it's empty right now because you can imagine a full vessel. You have something to compare this with. That comparison allows you to identify this vessel as an empty vessel. Do you see an empty vessel? What is your definition of an empty vessel? How would you recognize an empty vessel? A vessel that has nothing in it. Hmm? A vessel that contains nothing. You don't say that this is an empty duster, do you? You might say it's a clean duster, a dirty duster, 
You might say it's an old duster, a new duster. You might say it's a used duster. But you don't say it's an empty duster. Because the notion of emptiness is not something you would attribute to a duster. So you see this as a duster, but you don't conceive the concept of emptiness or fullness, for that matter, with a duster. But you do so with a vessel. Because in your mind, ladies and gentlemen, this was meant to be filled with something, wasn't it? Or rather, isn't it? It's meant to be filled with something. You can't help but think that there's a vessel here, and why did they leave it empty? Shouldn't they at least have put some soil in it and maybe a plant in it or something? Or maybe you know, at least an artificial plant just so that it would have looked better? Why an empty vessel? So this is the empty vessel sermon. I don't know, bring whatever you want. Put it out here. Next week we'll talk about that. You can't help but think this is an empty vessel. Because in your mind, this is a vessel, and that extends itself to being empty, because this is something that was made to contain something. See, I don't know if I can pick this up and not cause much damage. Oh, yes, it's safe enough. All of the elements, the materials that have gone into making this, perhaps it was clay, all of the molecules that make this up, and if you go a step further, all of the atoms, in fact, none of the atoms, if you question them, what are you doing? If you could speak, or if each of these atoms had a voice of their own, and if they could speak, and you ask them, what are you? What are you doing? What have you, what is your purpose? Yeah, none of them would offer to you the answer that you do right now, which is an empty vessel. They wouldn't say that. Not a single drop of clay would say that. Not a single molecule or atom would say, I am an empty vessel, or at least I am a component. I'm a constituent part of an empty vessel. Because this empty vessel is only an empty vessel in your mind. Conventionally, yes. Absolutely. In absolute terms, there is no empty vessel here. In absolute terms, there is no vessel here to be empty. But what do you see then? This is what we call a manifestation. 
but you see something beyond the manifestation, you perceive something beyond the manifestation. In fact, you actually only see the manifestation through your eyes, but you perceive something beyond the manifestation. You, be, you perceive what you call an empty vessel that only lives in your mind, in your mental realm. None of these atoms, in fact, none of these molecules, none of this, none of the clay, no amount of clay can actually form an empty vessel. If they were able to do that, then you wouldn't need a potter to make this. They would just come together in that combination and an empty vessel would be formed, but no. In fact, when they first made this, someone would have asked, what is this? And then as a convention, they would have agreed that this is something you can put something into. See, that is why you call this a vessel. It's something you can put something into. You call this a pen because it's something you can write with. You call this a duster because it's something you can erase with. This becomes a microphone because it's something you can speak into. And it amplifies your voice at the other end. This is a vessel for you because it is something that can contain something. Which part of this do you think volunteered to play that role? Which part do you think? Which part of this do you think stepped forward and said, yep, let's go do that today. Let's come together, let's join hands and allow people to put something into us. Nothing of that sort happened. So ladies and gentlemen, I present to you <laughs> I'm afraid I can't complete the sen that sentence. So I have to love and ask you to do that. So I'll say, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, and you can all say out loud, an empty vessel. Yes, you're nothing but an empty vessel. I need you to step beyond the conventional realm, the two-dimensional perceptions, and start to see what I'm, I'm trying to convey to you. This is not the Sunday morning sermon. So I expect our regulars to be here. In fact, today I, I think all I see are regular faces, no irregular faces, all nice and round, no square faces or triangular faces. Good. A day for some deep contemplation. A, a day for some profound investigation. Some exploration. For some realization. I mean, there's no point of all of the above if the latter didn't happen. And so much so that in fact, I think it was in last week's talk, not here, that the thought occurred that when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he didn't discover, in fact, he didn't, all that happened to him was a realization. 
Because the realization is you realize something that you already have with you. You know, I realized. When you realize something, it's already happened to you, hasn't it? You can't realize something that's about to happen to you. So the Buddha never found Buddhahood. It was not something he found. He didn't go looking for it. He just realized that he was a Buddha. When you become a Buddha, be that a Sammasam Buddha, a Pacheka Buddha, or an Arahata Buddha, when you become a Buddha, you know what you realize? You are always one. Do you agree? That is the realization of Buddhahood. You realize that you were always one. Always what one? A fully enlightened one. You will realize that you have always been a Buddha. That is why it's called a realization. That is why it's not called a finding. He didn't find Buddhahood, he realized Buddhahood. How do you make a hundred thousand arahants? That is what I just did there. A hundred thousand arahants. Because in the time it takes me to complete that sentence, a hundred thousand arahants are born. Where? Around the world. In this universe. Hmm? Where do you think? Where are 100,000 Arahants born by the time I complete this sentence? Where? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Here's one, and here's the rest of them. And please don't just cut that part of here's one and put it online, all right? <laughs> Everything in context makes meaning. Take it out of context, and it, mean, it makes absolutely no sense. Context is everything. So please don't take any of this out of context. I will never become an Arahant. That much I can say. Because an Arahant is not something you become. Arahanthood is something you realize you always were. You see, now this is going to get heavy, okay? You ready? I didn't come prepared for this. In fact, this morning, as I was getting myself ready, I thought, you know, for once I should have a, I should, I should pre-plan what I'm going to say. I'm going to try that today, I thought. And so as I was brushing my teeth this morning and shaving, I thought, what, what shall I talk about today? So I, start, I thought I'd, I'd come up with a plan. And so I thought, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to give a speech on this topic. <laughs> And then I thought I would, I would then talk about something, and then I thought, how is that going to lead to the next point? And so I was preparing my speech. I thought I have two hours to fill, or the best part of it, so I, I had better come with a good speech. And then I came down here, sat down, look at, looked at you, and I forgot everything. Do you have that effect on everybody? I'm lost for words after I see you all. And do you have that effect on everybody? So it doesn't work. No, I shan't try again. It's useless. It doesn't work. 
they would have been so artificial in any case you would have realized that swami nanas is trying to express something to us and it's just not making any sense today he's just maybe gotten off the wrong side of the bed uh, you would have felt that way so let's come back to what is natural for us remember last week we talked about the dhamma hmm? the dhamma is what the mind bears you just need to see the dhamma that is why the buddha is everywhere your dhammam pasati so mam pasati if you see the dhamma you see me you know and the buddha says vakali who was his disciple at the time you're looking at the body and you think you are seeing the buddha the buddha says no see let's take a step deeper ladies and gentlemen you know in remember this is the buddha that's speaking this it's not einstein in every syllable that he utters there's so much profoundness that even if you were to become the sariputta thero there would be still more to realize in that because this is the buddha who's making these utterances so he says vakali you're looking at this figure and you think this is the buddha and then he says your dhammam pasati somam pasati if you want to see the buddha see the dhamma now i ask you this question because i want you to imagine yourself in vakali's place okay when the buddha uttered those words if you see the dhamma you shall see me what do you think vakali should have looked at at that point elsewhere maybe take out a, the tripitaka which wasn't available at the time but if it were read the dhamma no he could have just stared right what he was looking at right at the buddha and said ah yes i see it now so his eyes were looking right at the buddha and the buddha says vakali don't look at me if you want to see the buddha see the dhamma and now vakali staring right at the buddha having heard those words he would have said or at least he should have said oh yes <laughs> i see does that make sense to you what i've just said there it is you're here to make sense of what i just said there that's why you're here that's why you come here every sunday saturday even understand that you're here to realize the depth of those words because that realization will make you understand that you are a buddha right now see what was vakali looking at he was looking at a buddha that was the problem he was looking at the buddha but what he didn't see was the buddha say what swami nanda is that a riddle sort of you know what is what makes sense three dimensionally is a riddle two dimensionally obviously you know that's when something's a riddle right you have to read between the lines you have to understand the meaning the essence of those words not just the not just the superficial meaning of the words there's an underlying message 
But to be able to see that underlying message, you have to have that underlying sight, which we call insight. So I ask you again, when the Buddha said, I permit me to draw as best I can, so I'm not saying this is the Buddha, but <coughs> this is not meant to be the Buddha, so no insult. If this is what Vakali was looking at, okay, if this is what Vakali was looking at, he probably would have had his arms his palms like that maybe, because you know, Vakali was someone who had such profound devotion to the Buddha. He was so, he was mesmerized by the mere sight of the Buddha. That's all he wanted. Yeah, he didn't want to listen to the Dhamma, he didn't want to listen to him speak. Just the mere sight of him was enough to fill his day. That was all he wanted. Nothing could have made him happier than just the sight of the Buddha. So he would stare at him whenever he would get the chance. He would just stare at him. Just, you know, so dreamily, just stare at him. Ah. Looking at the Buddha. All along he was looking at the Buddha, but what did he not see? The Buddha. So I, I asked the question. When the Buddha said, Vakali, what are you doing, man? Don't see me. If you want to see me, see through the Dhamma. If you see the Dhamma, then you will have seen me. Now tell me, if this is Vakali, or you, in that situation, looking at this, where would you have to look at now? A bit to the left? A bit to the right? A bit above the head? Or a bit below the feet? Where would you have to look now? <laughs> huh? No way, just... Just look at what you're looking at. Just look right where you're looking and see it insightfully. What the Buddha said was, don't just be mindful. Be mindfully aware. See the Buddha through the Dhamma, meaning, Vakali, come to your senses. Do come to your senses. Perceive simply what the mind bears. Perceive simply what the mind is meant to bear. Because you are a mind. You are a consciousness. And a consciousness arises when a sight object comes into contact with the mind base. And that is what is happening to you right now, Vakali. Realize that. As you don't realize that, what happens in your own mind, Vakali, because you have no realization of this, because you have no understanding of this, because you don't comprehend what I have told you to do previously, in your mind, you seek an identity. You seek to see, you seek to separate, you seek to see a person, an individual, a unit, an object. And therefore, when you see this, you think, I am the Buddha. There's a lovely saying, if you see the Buddha, kill him. That's exactly what the Buddha asked Vakali to do. <laughs> do you see Swami Nwansa here? Kill him. You want some weapons? I'm giving you them. 
I'm giving you the weapons to kill me. Come on, take them and shoot me down. Kill me. I'm training you to be murderers. See, then what about the Panatipata Veda Manisi Kapadam that you observed this morning? Huh? <laughs> See, again, context is everything. Cut that bit out and put it online. They will set this place on fire. Well, then they'll say, but you said, kill you. <laughs> Context is everything. Context is everything. That's why you can't say everything as is to a little child. You know, what they understand, their perception of the world is, is very limited. You know, their, their scope of understanding is very limited. So you're, you've got to be very careful what you, what you speak to a child. This is why what we discuss here, I would normally discuss on a Sunday morning. In fact, last week, I, I'm almost mistakenly at the beginning of the sermon, started to tread that way, and then I realized, oops, this is going too far. Take back. I said, are you in pain? I said, I can't, I, can't, I can't stop you from dying, but I can help you to realize that it is not you who's going to be in pain, and it is not you who's going to die. And then I thought, no, too soon for that. Come back. <laughs> if the Buddha would have been there, he would have said, come to your senses. <laughs> He would have summoned me and given me a slap and said, go back and do what you're supposed to do. This is not Saturday, this is Sunday. But, you know, all good things will come to those who wait. That is why patience is a virtue. You have to wait for it to happen. You know, here we are in the presence of those who have been practicing this for a very long period of time. There was a first day for you, all of you, wasn't there? The first day. There was a first day for me. Shall I tell you that story? Huh? My favorite story. So there's a first day for everyone. But you've got to give it some time. See, to a new audience, I'd say, the Buddha. See, in fact, what did I do this morning? Hmm? I talked to you about the Buddha, how great he is. What a... What a creation of, you know, what a, what a miraculous creation he is. How, how, how much devotion we ought to have towards him, him, a person. Hmm? And the sacrifice that he made for us, he, this person that was, that is no longer with us. Hmm? This person who passed away two and a half millennia ago. I was talking about him, I was talking, all I did was talk about him. And how I feel that he is my mother how I feel that he is my father and how he would give me his blessings if he were here today and adjust my robe and say, go forth and serve humanity. Hmm? I was talking about an individual, I was talking about a personality. Now I tell you, kill him. <laughs> See, context is everything, isn't it? Context is everything. 
what we need to do is to begin to realize that the profoundness of these words. Remember, I've always asked you to be a tea kind of person. What's a tea kind of person? It's a bit like this, right? That's why it's, it's a tea. It looks like a tea. Be a tea person, not a tea person. I don't care whether you're a tea person or a coffee person, but be, be a tea person. If this was the Dhamma, right? All the different points, all the different paths, 84,000 of them, as we, as we have come to know, all the different paths you could take to get yourself to the destination of Nibbana. It makes little sense, ladies and gentlemen, to keep going down and exploring every path, only to go a certain way, come back up and try another path, and then come back up and try another path. And then when you're almost there, you find another teacher and then come back up and try another path. You'll always keep trying, but you'll never achieve. I know I'm taking a sidestep here, but it's important from time to time to remind ourselves of that, right? In life, you know, we will, we will, come, we will come across lots of different options, and it's good to have options, of course. As they say, you know, have all the options on the table before you make a decision. But once you've made a decision, you have to you have to carry on on that path until you come to a, you know, come to a destination. The best analogy I can give is that of a, a chef. If you take two chefs and you watch them making making something, a dish, right? One will add salt at the beginning; the other might add it at the end. Now imagine. If you took instruction from the first chef, and then halfway through that, you decide, you know what, I don't like this chef. I'm going to go to the other chef to learn from him. Do you think you'll have a dish that you can have, eat? Why not? All you'll be tasting is the salt. Because what he's going to be teaching you is to add salt when you go to him. The first teacher taught you to add salt. The second teacher is also going to teach you to add salt. Because by the time you get to that guy, it's the point where he's adding salt. But if you stuck around with either of them long enough, hmm, now you have a dish that you can have and enjoy. That's why you've got to start somewhere and see it through to the end. You're inspired, you're motivated, discipline takes you there. There'll be times when it is tough, then you need your determination, but you have to continue with discipline until you get to your destination. What I see most people do. Nowadays, I see few people doing that because I don't get to see people who do this every day. Most of the time, I get to see few people who do that. In fact, most of you are RT kind of people. Most, most of the time, people do this, and then they listen to another teacher do this, and they go to another teacher or read a book or go to a meditation class or do this, and then all the time, they stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. If only they continued any of these paths, they would come to their destination. That's my point. None of these are wrong. What's wrong is your, uh, your approach. Why am I talking about that? I don't know why I'm talking about that. Oh, yes, Sunday. <laughs> so on Sundays, we talk to a new audience, unlike you, where you've been, you've been going on, a, on one path, one destination, one journey, rather. So I encourage you to continue that. So anyhow, coming back to our topic, 
your enlightenment is your realization. Your realization of who you are. As I said, the Buddha realized who he was under that Bodhi tree. It is not some other kind of, you know, it's not some kind of supernatural power or some, 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 some other kind of knowledge that he acquired from some way. All he realized was who he was. That's it. All he realized was who he was. And in that realization, he understood everything. Because what is the only thing that people don't understand? Themselves. Because there's a class you can take for everything else. If you want to study everything that's go going around you, how the world works, there's a class you can take for everything. But in the quest to understand yourself, you've got to do that. No one can do it on your behalf. You've got to do that. So your realization, ladies and gentlemen, is when you come to learn, come to recognize, come to, the best word, of course, is realize. When you come to realize that you are a Buddha. Now, what about this? Do you see the Buddha here? Hmm? Do you see the Buddha? So shall we replace the statue with this? Is that all right? Why? Should clay be put a certain way before you can consider that to be the Buddha? If clay was done in this way, is that not good enough for you? Who says that is the Buddha? So there's a way that clay should be sculpted. Hmm? Is that when it becomes the Buddha? At which point did that become the Buddha? Imagine, imagine the potter right, working with the clay, right? so as he turns the wheel, or I suppose when you make a statue, you don't turn the wheel. What you do is you would, uh, say a stone, okay? So that's a stone statue, I think it is. So he would have taken the, the chisel, thank you, and the hammer, right? And as he chisels away bits of the stone, at what point do you say, aha, that's the Buddha? At what point? So imagine there's the stone, right? That's the, that's the rock that he's taken. And he starts chiseling away down here. Hmm? And after a while, you begin to see something like this. Hmm? And on this side also, you begin to see something like this. So he's chiseling away. If I stopped, so I said, stop, stop. What is this? What would you say? You wouldn't say this is the Buddha, would you? No, because you don't see the Buddha. You still don't see the Buddha. Huh? Then, okay, so they continue. And then after a while, Hmm? 
if he if if he said you know I haven't got any more time to do this right if you want a Buddha statue take this give me half half price I give you a discount hmm? best price <laughs> and normally I would have charged you what say fifty thousand for this statue but as it's in this state in this state I'll say um, five thousand hmm? a good discount. Now tell me, are you happy and willing to take this, take it home, place it on the altar, right, and offer flowers and incense and the oil lamp and the water and the Buddha Puja? Hmm? How would you feel about doing that? Very uneasy. In your mind, you would, you would feel that something is missing. You'd feel that you just wouldn't be satisfied. Honestly, wouldn't would you? Now let, let you know. Let's open up, speak the truth, right? You wouldn't be satisfied. You may now be because I have tried to. I'm trying to explain to you something else to try and see the Buddha in everything. But ignoring the Dhamma for a second, if you looked at that, you wouldn't be happy to take that home as a Buddha statue. You might say, "Well, people are going to come and ask me, what's this thing?" And then I'm going to be fe feeling very embarrassed because this is not a Buddha statue. So when does it become a Buddha statue? When does it become a Buddha statue? So he has to continue working on this, doesn't he? Okay. How about now? I can't give you that for 5,000 anymore. I've done more, done more work on it. 7,000 now. Are you willing to take that home? Put it on the altar. Hmm? Oil lamp. Joffstick. Flowers. And do the Buddha Puja. The answer is a flat no, because you don't see the Buddha. You don't see the Buddha. So then, how can you say you are happy to take this and nothing but an empty vessel? <laughs> if you're not happy to take that, why would you be happy to take this? Because you don't see the Buddha. You need to realize that this is the Buddha. Remember again, Buddhahood is a realization. Buddhahood is a realization, the realization that all things are the Buddha. Everything is the Buddha. Everything is the Buddha. The Buddha is universal. He's everywhere. Mind you, it would be wrong to say he is everywhere. Buddhaness is everywhere. You hear that? Buddhaness? I'm inventing words here. <laughs> if the queen knew, <laughs> she'd have me beheaded. Buddhaness is everywhere. Because Buddhaness is what is. That is what it is. It is what it is. 
The reason you suffer, ladies and gentlemen, is because you don't perceive what is. You can't accept what is. You can't acknowledge what is. Every time something is presented to you, you have to do your thing to it. Whatever the thing that you have to do, you have to do to it. Until then, you are not satisfied. You don't feel content. Because there is some, you want to see the Buddha here so much so that you miss the Buddha. See, when sometimes you want to see something so bad, you miss the obvious. You miss the obvious. You want to see the Buddha so bad when I say, here, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the Buddha, I, you miss the obvious. You miss the Buddha here. You don't see the Buddha. Because, why because? You want to see the Buddha. You're trying to see the Buddha. Mentally, you're going through such a process, such a fight, such a battle to try to see the Buddha that you miss the Buddha. That is why this does not make you happy. When people are on such a quest to be happy, they stop being happy and they try to be happy. Because you can't be both. What both can't you be? Happy and trying to be happy. You can't be both. You can only be one. You can either be happy or you can try to be happy. They are mutually exclusive. This is why this is such an unusual, such an uh, you know, uncommon approach. Whereas with anything else, if you want to try to be rich, being rich and trying to be rich, trying to be rich, trying to be rich, you know, these two things are almost synonymous. Being pretty and trying to be pretty, you know, these things you have to do one to get to the other. Yeah. If you want to try to be, uh, say healthy right trying to be healthy gets you to healthiness trying to be wealthy gets you to wealthiness trying to be beautiful pretty gets you to pretty prettiness or beautifulness but trying to be happy <laughs> what does trying to be happy do it takes away your happiness So in other words, trying to see the Buddha stops you from seeing the Buddha. So when you try to stop, or rather, when you stop trying to do something, in this case, when you stop trying to see the Buddha, you see the Buddha. That is why under the Bodhi tree, that was a realization. What was the realization that the Buddha had? The realization that he should, trust, he should stop trying to become a Buddha. And then he became the Buddha. See, until then, he went after every teacher under the sun, right? Every teacher he went up to, he said, please, I will do everything you ask me to do. I'll devote myself to you. I will be your slave. I will be your servant. Help me to attain Buddhahood. And so he tried. Nibbana is unlike anything else. It is a realization. Now why did the Buddha tell Vakali, Yodhammam Pasati, Somam Pasati? Let's try and 
take that a step further to try and fully understand it? Because I know some of you will get it, but some of you will need a bit of help, and I'm sure everyone will. When you see the Buddha, what you don't see is what the mind bears. It's almost like, now you know how the mind comes to being. How does the mind come to being? An object has to come into contact with the mind base, right? And when these two things come into contact, a thought is born, right? So we can refer to that as the mind, <coughs> just for ease of communication. We can refer to that as a mind, we can refer to that as a thought. <coughs> or we can say consciousness is born. Five things happen at this point. Yeah? So what five things? You receive, you register, you recognize, respond, and you perceive. These five things happen. If these five things have happened, we can call that a chitta. We can call that a thought, we can call that consciousness, we can call that a mind. So all these terms I'm using synonymously at this point. Now at various points I might give them different meanings, but for the time being I, I, I refer to all of these things as the same thing. A thought is born. That is a Buddha. That is a Buddha because that is all an object can do when it comes into contact with the mind base. Give birth to a Buddha. It cannot do anything else. You see, when you want to see beauty in something, now say this for instance. If you see this as being a, an object of beauty, okay, if you think this is beautiful, You know that this has no capacity to give you beauty, don't you? Beauty is not a part of this. It, it is not an attribute of this. There is no beauty contained in this to give to you. How desperate then do you think you ought to be to see beauty where you, can, you begin to see beauty in things that don't have it? Can you see how desperate the mind is? Yeah, the mind is so desperate that it begins to see beauty in things that don't contain beauty. In fact, it begins to see ugly in things that don't have ugly. That's how desperate the mind is. So when the mind is so terribly desperate to see the Buddha, it stops seeing the Buddha. When the mind is so desperate to see anything, it stops seeing it. If you are so desperate to see an empty vessel, you stop seeing this, and you start seeing an empty vessel. In fact, you start seeing the vessel because you don't see the vessel. You don't see the manifestation here. Because you are so desperate to objectify this. Now here I mean objectify in a very specific way. What I have in my hand, folks, is not an object. What I have in my, uh, physicists, physicists will tell you that this is an object. Molecular scientists will tell you this is an object. But this is not an object. What this is, is simply a manifestation. This manifestation in your mind becomes an object. So in other words, you objectify manifestations. This is what we call as fixing things. 
This combination, this coming together of energy and matter, in your mind, you objectify. You see this as one unit. And in doing so, you fail to see the Buddha. You fail to see the Buddha within. So how do you now begin to see the Buddha then? Now you understand the problem. How do we begin to see the Buddha? To begin to see the Buddha, in other words, to achieve what you have come here for. In other words, to truly appreciate this. To truly appreciate this. To, to build yourselves up morally, mentally, not, not morally really, mentally, where you are now able to take this, in fact, not just this, what was here before. The first thing I drew on the board. For you to be able to take that home and put it where, and replace it even. Replace it with the Buddha statue that you might have at home today. To build yourselves up mentally to be able to do that, what you need to do is understand and realize anicca, dukkha, and anatta. This is the teaching of the Buddha. In fact, that is the Dhamma. So remember, we are giving here two interpretations of Dhamma. One, what the mind bears. Two, how the mind should bear it. These are the two things. Let me give you an analogy to help me understand this. Say this. When I show this to you, you see a pen. So the mind bears a pen. But how you bear that pen, now for those of you who will understand, of course all of you here, you will call this a pen. In Sinhalese you will have another name for it. In another language you will have another name for it. That is how you bear it. Okay? So that's an analogy for that. How you bear it is a product of your interpretation of it. But we all see the same thing. So an Englishman would say this is a pen. Some, a Sinhalese man, person would say this is a banner, and so on. So the way they bear it is dependent on their interpretation. Now let's take that a step further and bring that into understanding what I'm trying to explain to you here. When you see something, you perceive it. But that is the what in the Dhamma. When you perceive something, you bear it. But how you bear it, for that also you need the Dhamma. So two things you need the Dhamma for. What you bear and how you bear it. The how you bear it is dependent on your understanding or the non-understanding. So in other words, your wisdom or ignorance. Your understanding or the ignorance of Anichaduk and Anatta. Where this whole thing falls apart and where misery starts to happen into your life, the 11 great fires, you open the doors for the 11 great fires to enter and scorch you when, not when what you bear changes, but how you bear. This is what most people don't know. Almost all people, this is what they don't know. Honestly and truthfully answer this question for me, will you? Until you started to listen and understand the Dhamma, did you not think that it is what you bear that causes you pain? 
Weren't there times in your life you said, please don't show me that? I don't want to bear that. Hmm? Weren't there times in your life where you said, please don't, please don't say that to me? Don't, don't talk to me like that. Or don't say that to me. See, you are trying to change the wrong thing. You had a problem against the what you bear, not the how you bore it. You had such a fight with what, that's why you never won. That's why they will never win. See, ladies and gentlemen, do try and understand the significance of the Buddha's teaching here. Do try and understand how precious it is. Do try and understand how it is the medicine to all of suffering. Because in an existence that we know, and we have known, and we've always been, in an existence where we have always thought the problem is, was with the what, we've always had a fight with the what. We tried to change the outside world because that was the, that were, those were the things that brought us the what's. So we tried to change that. When things that you didn't like to hear were said, what did you do? You said, don't, don't tell me that. Don't, don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to that. When things that you didn't like to see were shown to you, what did you do? Don't show me that. Please hide it from me. When things that you didn't like to taste were given to you, what did you do? Please, I don't want that. Take it away. See, every time you try to change the what. You try to change the what because you try to change the part of Dhamma that was not given to you by the Buddha. So, in other words, you were not disciples of the Buddha back then. At that point, you would have probably said a hundred times over, Buddhang Saranangacham. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Hmm? But had you sought refuge? No. It is because you hadn't sought refuge in the Buddha, your dealing for happiness or to free yourself from sorrow was in trying to make changes to the other Dhamma. Not the Buddha Dhamma, the other Dhamma. What is the other Dhamma? The what? Because that is also Dhamma. What the mind bears is the Dhamma. Hmm? So you don't like to see a black pen, but you like to see a blue pen. So I show you a black pen and you say, change the Dhamma, please. So I show you the blue pen. I say, yes, I like that Dhamma. And another find, one fine day, I come and change it back to this again. You say, no, I don't want that Dhamma. Give me this Dhamma. See, you were always changing the what Dhamma. You were not ready to accept the Buddha Dhamma. With the Buddha Dhamma, it's not a matter of changing the what you perceive. It's a matter of changing how you perceive. If you only change that, now you perceive this in the same way you perceive this. Of course, you know this as a blue pen, a black pen, and you know this as a blue pen. But you interpret the two of them. You perceive the both of them in the same way. You perceive them through anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Suffering is caused not by the what you perceive. It is caused by how you perceive it. It is when you understand this truth, you can rightfully say, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, and Sanghang Saranangachami. 
because when that happens there is nothing that can upset you and you will stop trying to make trying to expect this to make you happy see how desperate you are just think about it <clears throat> now some of these things might seem a bit unfair because i know i'm speaking to an audience who've been who've committed themselves to the path and you know most of you are sila shravikas or anagarikas or anagarikas and so on right so i have the privilege to talk to an audience like you but on another day to another audience you know it would be quite fair to say you expect this to make you happy hmm? how unfair how unreasonable if you at work were asked to do something that was outside your remit hmm? what would you what would you walk up to a boss and say i, I didn't sign up for this it's unfair i try, i joined the company as a typesetter why are you asking me to sweep why are you asking me to wash the bathrooms why are you asking me to make your tea for you i hear i i joined the organization to be a typesetter so why are you asking me to do all these other things i'm not here to drive your car for you get yourself a driver or pay me more to do that you might say because you'll say that this is unreasonable unfair huh? now you expect this to make you happy you think this is beautiful how unfair <laughs> why expect something from something when it doesn't have it you know when you do that what happens when you do that what happens is suffering happens that's what happens suffering happens now i'm going to share with you something that i i just had this thought okay so i said you know good audience you get to hear good stuff for you to see beauty jati has to happen there's no choice about that for you to experience pleasure jati has to happen in other words suffering has to happen you say something's beautiful because it is the result of a comparison nothing can be beautiful if you don't compare it with something else agreed you know as i said this is an empty vessel because in your mind you have a picture or a, a premonition of a of a full vessel so therefore in comparison to that this is an empty vessel so beauty can only exist when a comparison can happen in your mind comparison can only happen between two things at minimum to compare you need at least two things how can you compare the same thing can you no so if everything was homogeneous everything were the same if was if it if it was all the same stuff you can't compare i ask you is this better you have an you have a question to ask me then yeah you have that question don't you i say is this better you go then what some knows see now i have to show you at least one other thing so you can answer that question either yes or no so if i show you this some will say yes it is better others will say no it's not better 
Now, therefore, do you see that to experience beauty, you have to be able to see more than one thing. In other words, you have to be able to see things separately. If you are not able to separate things, you are not able to experience beauty. So when the mind believes that beauty exists in the world and that beauty can be experienced, the, the, the pleasurable sensation, the pleasurable feeling of beauty is out there and we can, we can experience it, we can get it, I, I, can, I can certainly achieve that. What is the first thing that the mind is going to have to do? Separate. It's going to have to separate, even, <laughs> here's the funniest part, even if it's the same thing. Even when it's the same thing. It'll separate the same stuff into two, and then it'll say, aha, this is better than that. Tell me, is this madness or is it madness? Pick one. No, you can't have both. It'll separate the same stuff into two parts and say, ah, now this is better than this. See, jati has to happen. Jati has to happen before you can achieve all these things that the mind yearns for. <clears throat> now you know the mind is always looking for this pleasure. Right? We've talked about this for, for God knows how long. Right? How the mind is on this quest to experience pleasure. Because the mind is always in suffering. The mind is always in suffering because it always tries to be happy. Now you, do you see this vicious, vicious cycle? Right? It is born happy but it doesn't accept that. It wants to be happy. And because it wants to be happy, it has to be able to experience pleasure. That is the only happiness that it knows. The mind does not understand the happiness of Nibbana. Nibbana Paramahamsukhan doesn't understand this. Not yet, at least. I'm talking about what's happening with you right now. Okay, the mind doesn't understand that Nibbana Paramahamsukhan, the ultimate bliss, is happiness. So therefore, it looks for an alternative bliss. For us, it's an alternative bliss. Now, when I say us, I'm talking about someone with an understanding of the Dhamma. There are, I'm talking about two minds here. One with an understanding of the Dhamma, <clears throat> that is us. And when I say, when I don't refer to us, I'm talking about the Dhamma. Uh, sorry, I'm talking about the mind that is ignorant, okay? So when the mind wishes to be happy, when it looks for that happiness, and it has no recogn recognition, understanding, or comprehension about the ultimate bliss, it looks for an alternative bliss. Because one way or the other, ladies and gentlemen, the mind has to be happy. <coughs> Excuse me. So when the mind is born in an environment where there is ignorance, ignorance prevails, the mind is born into an environment where the mind believes that happiness can be experienced. But the happiness that it knows is not the happiness that you know now. The happiness that it knows is not the ultimate happiness. The happiness that it knows is the happiness of pleasure. Not happiness. Pleasure. And how do we experience pleasure? Through relief from vexation. See, the mind has experienced that pleasure at some point. 
And so there's always the, the hope, the dream, the promise of that pleasure. Now, if that pleasure is to be experienced, there's only one way that it could be done, and that is by comparing two things. There is no pleasure where there is no comparison. Can you give me one example, if you can? Now, give me one example where you experienced a pleasure that, is not, that, was, that was not through comparison. Whether it is a sight we speak of, a sound we speak of, a smell, taste, or touch we speak of. I'm talking about mental pleasures. Because you might say, well, touch, Swami knows, is that not pleasurable? Well, it is, bodily. But I'm talking about the mental experience of pleasure. See, otherwise, you know, if, say, someone came and rubbed your hand, right, how come two people rubbing your hand can give you two different, completely different experiences mentally? Right? One, when they go like they say, no, please stop, I don't like you doing that. Whereas the other person, you say, go, please continue. One gives you, they both give you the same physical sensation, but mentally, your perception of that is very different. Because, see, when the first person does that, maybe someone you don't like, maybe a stranger, you don't like that, right? You'll say, hey, can you stop that, please? Hmm, I don't like that. Keep your hands to yourself, you might say. That is because that feeling in your mind you're comparing with the sensation of, Someone that you like rubbing your hand. And you say, I don't like that. But what if this someone that's rubbing your hand is someone that you do like? Then you say, please continue. That is very pleasurable. But physically, it's the same feeling. So, you see, I'm talking about the mental cognition of this. Okay? So, be that a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, or a touch. There is, unless you can prove me wrong, there is no way that that uh, pleasure can be experienced from any of these things unless there is something else to compare with. Would you all agree with me? When we speak of minding as we've done in the past, that is the job of the mind. Yeah? When we talk about comparison, now the mind oversteps its, its job and it goes to do something that it's not supposed to do. And of course that's where all this suffering takes place. So when we speak of minding, we are talking about those five things we talked about earlier. Yeah, the receiving, registering, and so on. Perceiving, right, and the, and the, the whole lot. The panchaskandha. That is what we refer to as minding for the time being. Okay? So, without comparison, there is no pleasure because the mind has never known an alternative pleasure. What we today call as happiness, the ultimate bliss. Now, for that to happen, of course, you need at least two things. How can you compare one thing with the same thing? You can't. You need two things. Even, even if it's the same thing, well, actually, you know what? You can compare one thing with the same thing. For that to happen, you need time. Then it becomes a completely different thing. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> this is the perfect stage, I tell you. See, I, did, I came with an agenda, but <laughs> none of this featured in that. <clears throat> to compare this with this, you need time. This looked better yesterday. It doesn't look so good today. See? Because time gives you an, uh, an additional dimension 
Absolutely. To relate a story. That additional dimension allows you to compare the same thing with its, or the thing with itself. Because when you put, that, put it on the time dimension, now they're no longer the same thing. This was this yesterday, it is this today, and tomorrow it will be something else. See, either you have to have two things, or you have to have the same thing, but perceive it as two different things. You can do that with the dimension of time. Time is the construct of the mind, so that it can experience what? Pleasure. It can experience separation. When you add the dimension of time, the same thing can be perceived as two different objects. What a miracle. <laughs> you know, you've been doing all these things all this time in Sansara. Aren't you impressed by yourself? <laughs> Give yourself a pat on the back. <laughs> Look at all the things I've been capable of doing all this time in Sansara. How, how wonderful creatures you are. Without your knowledge, even, you know, unbeknown to you, look at all the things you've been doing all these years. When you wanted pleasure, see how far you went. See the distance you were willing to travel. See all the magic that you were prepared to, prepared to do. Just to experience that pleasure. That's why I say, to be able to see pleasure in this, how desperate must you be? How desperate must you be? Don't you have immense gratitude to the Buddha? Just immense gratitude. Just, from, just for freeing you from that desperation. No, it, it, it's like, it's like, if you've seen, that, if you've seen a dog, right, that's so, so thirsty, right, it's taking its tongue out of his mouth. Right, incredibly thirsty. You've seen, you've seen an animal like that, right? running around, trying to just lap up a, you know, just a mouthful of water. A really thirsty animal. And you feel sorry for it, don't you? Now imagine that animal in the middle of a desert with no hope of water. Not just no water, but no hope of water. Don't take this lightly. Because that is what you are. Not just Helpless, but hopeless. Helpless is when you don't have water. Hopeless is when you have no way of getting some water. That is hopeless. That is why the Buddha is called not just Asarana Sarana, but Anathanatha. He didn't just offer us help, but he saved us from our destitution. He showed you what the problem was and he then said, here's where you can find the solution. Both things. Both of them. Both of them. It's just incredible. Such desperation that you invent a dimension that not, does not exist. There is the dimension of length, there's the dimension of breadth, and there's the dimension of width. X, Y, and Z, but the dimension of time doesn't exist. It's a make-believe dimension. It's a, it's a dimension conjured up in the mind simply because the mind wishes to experience pleasure, and what can it do when it only has one thing? 
to experience pleasure, you have to put it into the dimension of time. And then it becomes two things. In fact, to be two things, you just need to be one second apart. Not even so much. Uh, one millisecond, it doesn't even have to be that much. See now, how separate can this be? When you include the dimension of time, you can keep dividing time until the cows come home, right? And you can still keep dividing it, can't you? Yeah, it's not like time goes from one day to the second day to the third day. It's not like that, is it? Time can be divided infinitely. It can be divided infinitely. Whereas if you had to, if you had to have another object, you have one object, you have two objects. But to compare this with itself, now you have an infinite number of instances with which you can compare this. Infinite opportunities, infinite pleasure. How desperate must you be? That is the whole point here. How desperate must the mind be to create a wholly new dimension so that it can revel in the experience of pleasure? Have sympathy on whom? The poor. Hmm? Whom then? On thyself. Have sympathy on thyself, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this is why, this is why Guru Handro and the Mahasangha, right? We always say, take some time to dedicate a part of your life at least. To heal yourselves, at least a part of your lives. I'm showing you time and time and time again, right, with as many examples as I possibly can, in every single way I can explain this to you, that you are desperate and you don't even know it until it is revealed to you. This is why it's so terrible. You know, if you knew the problem, if you if you knew the problem and and you could discover the problems your problem yourselves, then you know that's better. But the thing here is, you don't know you're in a problem until someone shows it to you, and then you realize it's a big problem. It's the biggest problem. See how how bad that is. Yeah, it's like cancer, but undiscovered. What's worse, a cancer that you know, or a cancer that you don't know? Which one's worse? The second, isn't it? The cancer that you don't know of. Because what does it do? It kills you and you don't even know it. It grows inside and you don't even know it. What, day by day? Or hour by hour? This is why, you know, we urge you to put in at least a part of your day, if not possible, a part of your week, if not possible, at least one day of the month to your own salvation because you're destitute. You're not just helpless, you're hopeless unless you take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. Now you know that you, needed, you needn't take that from me just because I'm a Swami Nuhansay in a monk 
that I have borrowed from the Buddha, and so I have to preach his Dhamma. Huh? You don't take it on that, do you? Do you think I'm saying these things because of that, and that's why you have to accept it? Because I have to say what the Buddha said? No. See, I'm proving it to you. With every point, I'm giving you solid proof and evidence that this is what is happening to you. You, with your own, <coughs> with your own good sense, your intellect, your ability to, to analyze things, right? In the lab of your life, these things are making sense to you. So don't come here for the Buddha. Come here for yourself. I mean, I think we all ought to do more. If there's one takeaway you want to take from today, and as you leave this room, I say, you know, it's, what you're doing is not enough. You got to do more. Not because I say so. Have sympathy for yourselves. You can empathize with somebody else, but come on, have sympathy for yourselves. Is that, is that too much to ask? I'm not asking you to sympathize with me, I'm asking you to sympathize with yourselves. Look at what's happening to you. You are so desperate that when you want to think that this is pretty, you create an additional dimension with infinite possibilities. And then you say, this was better a microsecond ago. Because you've been given a scale on time which is divisible an infinite number of times. Let's come out of that sorry state. You don't need to be there. As I said, this is the best stage. This is the best platform. This is the best place to come to our senses. This is not just a bit of inspiration or a bit of motivation. I need you to I need you to take this wholeheartedly, folks. You know, I will allow me to say, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> I'm not asking this for myself. I'm asking this for you, and I'm still saying, please, do something for yourselves. You know, you're all fighting for 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 happiness. You're all fighting for bliss. Make sure you you've picked the right fight. As they say, you know, before you climb up the ladder of success, make sure it's leaned against the right wall. Otherwise, we're all climbing up ladders, right? And we have no idea what walls they're leaned against. How do you know if you just come over the wall, you know, next, right next to you is a cesspit? How do you know? You, you better find out before you start climbing that wall. Come to your senses, at least in this moment, you know, when we finish this sermon and you have to leave, forget everything I said, even if, it's, if, it's, if, if that is all you can do while you're here, right, make a resolution, because that you can do while you're here, if you've got nothing else to think about while you're here, right, while you're here you don't have to think about your cooking, your cleaning, washing the dishes, taking the children to school, right, doing your, your, your report and handing that over in time, you've got, you got nothing, none of those things to think about. While you're here, you're here. You're, all you've got to do is to think about what I'm, what I'm sharing with you here. You know, every little bit will help. Every resolution will help. Every affirmation will help. But make them the right ones and make them count. You are so many people to others. You are so many people to your community. You play so many roles to your family, to your friends, to your relations, to your neighbors, right? You, 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 you have 
101 different roles you have to play, all these different personalities, and they rely on you, they depend on you, fair enough, but who, who do you have to take refuge in? Who's going to do this for you? That is why I say, you know, through these words, as we explain the Dhamma, right, as we go into its depths and its profoundness, kindly appreciate the desperation that you're in. That is the whole point of this. I, I, I preached to you the Dhamma so that you can understand two things. One, how pitiful a state that you find yourselves in, in today. And two, how do you get out of it? That is all I have to say. Sir? Mm. Let's get into that now. For you to be able to say that one is better than the other, Now we understand that you have to separate them. Yeah? Unless you separate, even if it's the same thing, and after all, it is the same thing that you separate, you have to perceive separation. Let's keep it at that. So should they be separate? No. You have to perceive separation. Because separation is all is simply a perception. There is no separation that happens outside. We've talked about this. I remember the, the murmuration that we watched the other day with the birds, right? It was all the same stuff, just different configurations. But when the mind wishes for separation, when the mind seeks separation, it goes into this mode, insanity mode, and it, then it begins to perceive a separation. When that has happened, we can say that moha has happened. This is delusion. This is delusion. Now you're seeing an illusion. So here's a subtle difference between ignorance and delusion then. Ignorance is, a, is an understanding, albeit a misunderstanding or a wrong understanding. It is not the same as delusion. So avidya is not the same as moha. Moha is a state of mind where you begin to see an illusion. The illusion that you are now beginning, that you have now begun, and that you are now able to separate. So that is the illusion that you now see. So deluded, you begin to see an illusion. We say that something is, or someone is deluded when they're out of their mind, right? See, that's a nice, nice, nice way of putting it. They're out of their mind. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> because what, in, in other words, what we are saying is they're doing something that is more than minding. They're out of their minds. So when the mind is deluded, based in ignorance, without ignorance, delusion cannot happen. Of course. What is ignorance again? Nietzsche, Sukha and Atta. In other words, separation is possible, separation is good, right? And when separated, it, give, it, it, is, it is a pleasurable thing. That separation is beneficial, separation is great, separation is good, it's, it's nice. It is, it is what, what we should all hope for and aim for. That is what, that is what Nietzsche, Sukhaya and Atta, you know, in simple terms. When that is what the mind is based in, now the mind is deluded. Yeah, when you hold something ignorant, or when you hold something that is untrue, now we say that the mind is, mind is deluded. When the mind is deluded, it begins to see an illusion. No sooner nor after. 
or no later. No sooner nor later you begin to see an illusion. And that illusion is the illusion of a separated entity. Does that make sense so far? Yeah? When the mind is diluted, it begins to see an illusion, and that illusion is the separated entity. Now, once you have a separated entity, you have lots of separated entities. Because you can't separate just one thing. Can you? Remember that question? I told you not to ask. <laughs> the forbidden question. Huh? So, I mean, also, what do we separate from what? When I say nothing can be separated, if you were to ask me the question, what from what cannot be separated? That very question itself has the problem in it, doesn't it? You can't be asking me that question if you don't separate. What do you separate from what? So you see, the moment you separate something, do you remember those Venn diagrams from school? This is the universal set, right? The moment you separate, it seems like you've only separated one lot, but what about the rest of it? Are they also not separate? See, so to separate, you don't have to do true lines. You only have to do one line. One line separates into two. So one gives you two. You don't have to do two lines to separate twice. You only have to do one line. So therefore, when one thing is separate, everything is separate. So in this world, you're not going to see just one thing as separate and everything else the same. That, that, it doesn't work like that. <clears throat> when the mind begins to experience separation, okay, when the mind begins to experience separation, now hang in there with me, okay? When the mind begins to experience separation, separate things can be perceived separately. Yeah? I mean, how do you know they're separate? They're perceived separately. Now we go, we, we have now stepped beyond the perception that an arahant does, that is pancha skanda. Now we are talking about pancha upadana skanda. Only one word difference, but a whole world's difference. With that one word, a whole world is created. And that is the world on which dukkha lies. Dukkha loke patitita is that. Are you all with me so far? Good, okay. So with one word, the whole world. One word, whole world, nice, huh? <laughs> so, the Arahant's perception has now been transcended. And now you begin to perceive separation. And when separation is, is experienced, is perceived, they have to be perceived as separate things. And when perception has to happen, each of those separate experiences must be given a name. They must be given a name. They must be, now hear me, they must be registered separately. They must be received separately. They must be recognized separately. They must be responded to separately. And they must be perceived separately. See, now the abuse or the misuse of the Panchaskanda has begun to happen. In fact, the abuse or the misuse of the mind has begun to happen. The mind was not meant to do that. The mind was simply meant to 
receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. Now what is the mind doing? It's receiving, it's registering, it's recognizing, it's responding, and it's perceiving. But isn't that the same thing that it did before? No. Previously, it was just the pancha skandha. Now it is the pancha upadana skandha. <laughs> In other words, separately. It was only meant to perceive manifestations. Now it's perceiving separations, not manifestations. It's now perceiving separations. So when it begins to perceive separations, these things that are separate, they, as we say, of course, need to have a name. That is sanya. So the first separation that you experience, you give it a name. What name do you give it? Of course, me. That is the first separation the mind experiences. And the moment you experience that separation, it has to be given a name. Even if you didn't have language, okay? Even if you didn't have language, you'd still sense it. Now, you know, a child has no awareness of language, like an infant. So do you think that at that point the child doesn't perceive the self? It's a very easy path to Nibbana then. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. They don't have a word for it, but they sense it. No less. They sense it no less. What they learn at school is, what do you call that feeling? You know, when you have sometimes that feeling, you ask someone, you know, I have this, this, this funny feeling, I don't know what to call it. This funny feeling. And you ask someone, what, what, is, what is that feeling? In the same way, a child learns what to call that feeling. But very soon it's given that answer because the mother picks up the child and goes, Oh, my Chutiputta. Look at Amma. See? <laughs> so now the child knows. Ah, okay. So that separation is called Amma. And this separation is called Chutiputta. The, you know, they've already got these boxes. Separate boxes. They just need to be filled. So the moment you give it a name, they go into a pre-built box. They're prefabricated. <laughs> All you got to do is fill it. And that's what happens. So that now the child perceives a separate thing there, a separate thing here. Right? All that needs to happen is the child needs to understand how do you respond to this thing and how do, how do I respond to this thing? How do I name this thing? How do I name that thing? How do I receive this thing? How do I receive that thing? These are the questions that the child has and they, the child, begins to learn through just, you know, growing up with ample help from everyone around them. That's what happens. You know, I'm, I'm talking about your life. This is what happened to you. Hmm? Who are you? You had that question a long time ago. Hmm? Now I'm, sure I, I'm helping you to find answers. Where did it all go wrong? What, what all happened to you? How did it all start? But remember, this is a child that you know, had a previous incarnation, for those of you who believe in that. Right? And we can prove that in the Dhamma. I'm not going to prove that today, but we can. By this point, we have come far enough in the Dhamma to prove logically that there were previous births and there will be future births. I'm satisfied enough with that. I'm satisfied enough for me to hasten my path here, not to worry about what's going to happen next. By that much, I'm satisfied. Anyhow, coming back to the point. So, 
Now that you have begun to experience separation, they have to be given names, right? And therefore, the first, the first experience of separation that you give the name self and everything else you can give collectively one name, not the self. See, when you separate, see if these are flowers. Oh, oh, oh actually, let's go to back to Devanampitis, the great king. Hmm? If these are trees and these are mango trees, what are all the other trees? Trees that are not mango. Hmm? So it might just be that what the what the great Thero did was actually give a short sermon to the king. Who knows? Yeah. We understood it later. <laughs> Of all the trees there are, you know, great king, what tree is that? It's a mango tree. Are there any other trees? Besides this tree? Yes, there are other trees besides this tree. Are there mango trees? Well, there are mango trees and there are trees that are not mango trees. And so, you know, a bit of questioning here, there and there, right? In those questions, in those answers, today we begin to begin to see a, a profound sermon Short, sharp, concise, but short and sweet. Let's talk about that another day. Huh? Thank you. <laughs> I told you this is the great this is the best platform there is. And when you have regular faces, we don't know what happens. Fireworks. So it's good to have regular regulars come along. It's good. New faces are also welcome, of course, but and when you have regulars, you know, you know that they understand what I'm talking about. Then I can always keep going further, you know, one step further. Otherwise, we are, we are always, you know, mulling in this, on the same stuff, basics. That's good, of course. But this helps us to pro progress on our path. So anyhow, when, this, when these are mango trees, all of these are trees that are not mango. Yeah. So when you experience that first separation, that is the self, and everything else is not the self. And in this pool of things that are not the self, again, as I said, once you experience separation, you can't just experience one thing as separate and everything else as the same. Because it is the mind that perceives. Yeah, so this separation happens in the mind. It's not, it's not something that happens on the outside. If it did, then there could be a separate thing and everything else could be the same. But that's not how it happens. Did you catch what I said there? Yeah. If the separation happened on outside, then one object could be separate and everything else could be the rest. And they could all be the same thing, right? But that's not how it happens. Because it happens in the mind, and the mind is the instrument that perceives everything, when you wear colored glasses, is of that color. So similarly, when you perceive separation, everything appears separate. So each of those things must have a name. They ha should have a purpose. They should have a, a form. Yeah, not the form you feel. The form, right? Structure, right? They should, they should have all that. So how does that now lead us into Raga and Dvesha? So now you understand Moha. You understand the delusion part. Remember, all this, if you go back to the, to the origins, the mind is desperate. Otherwise, none of this would have happened and we, haven't, we wouldn't have come this far. 
Okay, so we can't forget the story of why the mind, the, why the mind started to do all this in the beginning. It hasn't yet completed its journey because it's still desperate. What the mind wants is pleasure. It has experienced an element of pleasure because separation has happened. But that separation is not enough. You know, when you can go the whole way, why just stop at half? Huh? When you can go the whole way, why stop halfway? So let's go further. See how desperate the mind is? You know, tell me by that point, has it not experienced an element of pleasure? It has. Because it has experienced separation. But why does it not stop? Because it's not enough. This greedy mind has just not had enough yet. You can't fault it for it because it's desperate. When it's desperate, when it's desperation time, right? you will go as far as it takes, as far as you need to go to free yourself. So the mind still has time before it, it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> Huh? If this is only the beginning, it's sort of come halfway, right? There's still time left before it has to perish and never to see the, the, you know, the, the, the surface of the earth again, never to see daylight again. It's still got time left. So in the time that we have left, might as well keep on separating. So it's after pleasure. So now what happens? Now it sees an object and it sees it as a separate object. It's, has it had enough yet? Not enough yet. So now, what other ways in which could we, what other ways in which could we experience pleasure? By comparing. See, here's the thing, right? The mind doesn't need to know that it has to compare for that pleasure to happen. Let me explain why. The mind doesn't need to know that I have to compare and so that I can experience this. So, you know, Patija Samupada is not like a process that the mind invented. It's, there's no other option. It is out of circumstance that the Patija Samupada process has come to be the way it is. When the mind went into separation, things separated. And when separation happened, now the mind sees two objects. This is one and this is the other either on the time dimension or if you have two objects, those two objects. When you have two objects, now you can't help comparing. You can't help comparing now. So the mind doesn't need to know. It doesn't need to know that to experience pleasure, I have to compare. The mind doesn't need to know this because the comparison happens without its will. It doesn't have to know. Come again, sir? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Even the Namagotha, those those instances that come come into into mind, they're also separate, aren't they? That's the whole point. Either you take it through your eye through the eye door, or you take it through the ear door, or you can take it through the mind door out of Namagotha, which is which are your memories. So when 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 you have when separation has happened and it's not just one thing that is separate, but all things are separate. Now there is ample room for comparison because when you have two things, how can you how can you stop comparison? It's just the natural next step, isn't it? So now two things are there and they can be they can be compared. 
So when you compare two things, one has to be better than the other. So when one is better than the other, the mind enjoys that. And then we say there is raga or desire. Now the mind experiences pleasure. And when if it's something that is the worst one out of the two, now the mind experiences dvesha. In other words, aversion. So, we began with delusion. And out of delusion came, in, came the illusion that there are separate things, separate entities, separate objects. And once they came into being, now you are on a stage where comparison can happen. And the moment two or more objects are there, comparison is the natural next step. And when you compare two things, one is always going to be better than the other. Therefore, the better one, raga, and the worse one, dvesha. See, that is why whenever we talk about moha and dvesha, we talk about, sorry, rather, raga and dvesha, we talk about moha raga and moha dvesha. Because they're both rooted in moha. They're both rooted in moha. They're both rooted in delusion. Without delusion, they cannot exist desire, and neither can there exist aversion. Either conflict or companionship. These two things you want. Either to be with something or to be against something. All, both, both of these two things can only happen where separation happens. So you see, now, the very fact that there are things that you like and the things that you dislike is enough, is all the evidence you need then, don't you, that things are separate for you. So you see, whenever you experience likes and dislikes in your life, preferences, things that make you happy, things that make you unhappy, right? this should be enough evidence for all of you that separation is still going on in my mind. Someone comes and shouts at you, someone comes and praises you. You like one, you will not like the other. That is because you, two, you see these two things as separate. It's not just the minding separation. Right? You know, you're out of your mind. It's not just perceiving the pancha skanda. What you're perceiving now is the pancha upadana skanda. Meaning, you have gone beyond perceiving them as simply manifestations. What you perceive them is as separations. That's what's going on. So now you see how raga happens and how dvesha happens. Raga and dvesha, they both happen because moha happens. Why does moha happen? Because you're ignorant. With an and when a mind arises in an ignorant environment, where ignorance is the, is the, the basic information, right? when that is the information on which the whole play rolls out, right? this ignorance is that the world is pleasurable. In other words, things can be separated. Right? They are not cause and effect driven. They are static or they are, they are you know, fixed entities. Thank you, they are fixed entities. Right? And that experience is, is, is pleasurable. Like that is what we are here for. That is what joy is. Right? And that this, this separation, this separatedness or this separation is, is possible. Nitya, Sukha and Atta, from there on, starts the game. And every time it happens, this is positive feedback. Because, you know, it doesn't really happen. But you perceive it as happening. Because you are deluded. In the illusion of 
this happening where you perceive that it's actually going on, where you actually, you feel that this, this separation has happened. You feel the joy when you see this. You think, oh, that's pretty. The moment that has happened to you, it feeds back. The feedback feeds into the ignorance. What is ignorance? That pleasure exists. So you see, every moment you experience pleasure, it is positive feedback. That, oh yeah, pleasure exists. See, I was right. So let's continue. Let's try again. Let's try again and again and again. See, you don't need anyone's help to go in sansara, to continue the journey in sansara. What you need help is to stop that journey. Because the help you need comes from within to continue that journey. Every time you experience pleasure, every time you experience separation, it gives you positive feedback and says, yeah, it worked this time around, let's try again. But the problem is this, you know, every chitta that arises passes away. Yeah, every chitta that arises passes away. So whatever pleasure you experienced is very short-lived. So therefore, you've got to try again. You've got to try again. When the thought passes away, what passes away along with it? Now, this might be, this is just the, you know, this probably is something we should talk about in a whole sermon for itself, right? But I'll, I'll say these words before we conclude for the day. When the thought passes away, remember this is a thought that arose simply to perceive the Panchaskanda, but now it's perceiving the Panchupadhanaskanda. In the Panchupadhanaskanda, you have seen the Buddha, haven't you? Not the true Buddha, but the Buddha, the fake Buddha. Hmm? You've seen the fake Buddha, not the true Buddha. This fake Buddha is a creation of delusion. Yeah, it's a creation of delusion. So, this illusion can only exist for as long as the mind, the deluded mind exists. So now what happens when the deluded mind passes away is this illusion along with it has to pass away, leaving you back in desperation. Leaving you back in desperation. Now you can't wait that mind is, is incessantly engaged in this, in, this, in this journey of trying to create the next chitta so that it can carry on experiencing that separation and that self. See, this is why, you know, when arahants achieve that arahanthood, they go around knocking on doors and they go around crying out with joy the ultimate bliss that they have experienced. You don't know how bad your headache is until it's cured. That's when you know it. Because what do you have to compare it with? Nothing. Once you become an arahant, you will realize the state that you are in right now. Because right now, you have nothing to compare it with. How do you know how bad it is right now? What do you compare it with? If, you're, if you were asked to carry, you know, right from the very first moment you opened your eyes and you could perceive anything, if you were asked to carry a, a rock in your hand, never to let it down, never to drop it, you don't know what it feels like not to carry it, do you? You don't know the burden of it until you drop it. So you might wonder, why does an arahant express a, 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 a pian of joy? Why, why does he go from, you know, from room to room informing, announcing of his attaining sainthood? It is because he has experienced 
that freedom. That's why this is called vimukti, freedom. Freedom because it is freedom from the fight for happiness. It is freedom from the struggle for happiness. It is freedom from waiting for the next chitta to rise, to show you the illusion again. It is that freedom where the mind is stilled. Not stilled as in the mind does not focus on anything. Stilled as in the mind is not perturbed. It is not disturbed, it's not bothered, it's not frustrated. It's not annoyed. It's just peaceful. This is tranquility. Sir. Comparison happens with separation rather than before. Because how can you compare if you haven't separated? That's the point, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so, so even by view, you have to appreciate that two things are separate. Even if it's by view, just by view alone, right? Even, even if it didn't, hasn't happened in the mind yet, at least by view alone, you should still see them as separate things. See, it is that view to, it is the view that things are separate which drives the mind to experience a separation. And when it's not physically possible, now the mind has to go into that insanity mode to try and somehow create an, a, a virtual reality that does not exist. So when did these virtual reality glasses come in? Long time after we started seeing virtual reality. That is the illusion of delusion. You see a virtual reality. It's not the truth. The very fact that you sense yourself is a virtual reality. So everyone in this room, all of these objects, you can compare all these things. You can compare these things for the, for the simple reason that you can see them as separate things. You can see them as more than something that is merely a manifestation. You see them, you perceive them as pancha upadana skanda. Not just the five aggregates, but the five, they call it the clinging aggregates. Clinging, why so? Clinging because clinging to the, clinging to the goal, clinging to the objective, clinging to the aim or the ambition or the vision of separation. That is what it's clinging to. When you, when you, remember when, the, when, when your kid wanted something? When your child wanted something, right, the young child wants something, perhaps you're walking just past a shop, right, maybe a toy shop. What does a child do? Does she say, excuse me, mother, please can I have that? Hmm? If, if it's not too much bother, <laughs> is that what the child does? What does the child do? It clings onto the mother. Hmm? Tugging on the mother's dress. Uh, uh, I, mean, I, mean, I want it, I want it, I want it. Yeah, that's what the child does. It clings onto the mother. Ever hopeful that if, I, if only I, I beg enough if only I bother her enough, I will eventually get what I want. That is why the mind clings onto the five aggregates. When you see a child do that, you know that the child is desperate, don't you? They say, child, wait, Buddha, wait, you know, tomorrow I'll get it for you. Ah, no, 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 no. I want it now. Well, mothers, don't you have that experience? Others who are not mothers, you will have had a mother, right? You have a mother, you'll have had a mother, you know, you, we've all been there, we've all done that. How when we wanted something so badly, we would cling on to them, won't we? 
Until we get it, this is how the mind clings. Clings onto the Rupa, clings onto the Vedana, and to the Sanya, and to the Sankara, and to the Vijnana. All the while expecting to experience separation. That is why they call Pancha Upadana Skanda. And that is why the Buddha says, Pancha Upadana Skanda Dukkha. The five aggregates, the five clinging aggregates is the product of separation. No sooner, no later. Then clinging happens. Upadana leads to bhava in the Patichasamupada process. Hmm? Upadana clings to, leads to bhava. Bhava, by the point it has come to the stage of bhava, right, is just a fraction of a moment before the jati has happened. So all of the ingredients, all of the elements are now ready. This is the perfect soup for jati to happen. The perfect recipe, the environment is right, all the right conditions, and now in the very next moment, suffering has begun. That is jati. In fact, separation has happened. In that moment, this bhava moment, what happens is the mind goes into steps from sanity to insanity. In that moment, pissu bhava. You go into insanity mode. You go into insanity mode. All the conditions are now right. Clinging on to that rupa. Come on, I want it. Can you imagine that? Hmm? I'm, I'm, I'm enacting it for you so that at least you can, you can understand what's going on inside of you. Yeah, so the production of energy to the, you know, to create karma and all that, all that happens. Hmm. So that upadana stage, that, at that stage, you know, it's really desperate. You know it because you have experienced this. When someone wants something so bad, they cling on to it, go, I want it. And usually what happens if you don't give the child that at that point? The child behaves like a crazy, crazy man, doesn't he? Sometimes they'll roll on the floor and scream out the top of their voices and they go into a hysterical fit. You know this. Either you've done this or this has happened to you. Or a bit of both. See, that is that insanity, that, that stage where it steps from sanity to insanity at, at Bhava. That's why I said, Pisubhav. It, it transforms you. That, that's the final stage. But once, uh, once ignorance has happened, there's no turning back. You know, you can't like stop this halfway, you know, pull the handbrake, you know, let's wait for a while, stop for tea. <laughs> you, you can't do any of that. If there is ignorance, jati happens. If jati has happened, there's ignorance. No sooner, no later, right? Once it starts, there's no stopping. That is why all we do here on this platform, in this stage, under this roof, in this place, is we chisel away at ignorance, nothing else. I can't stop your bhava. I can't stop your upadana. I can't stop tanha. I can't stop abhisankara for you. I can't do any of those things because it's like falling off a cliff. Once you've gone past that point, there is nothing anyone on the cliff can do to stop you from descending and hitting the ground and breaking your neck. There's nothing we can do. The only thing I can do is not pull you back, but ask you to walk back. I can't pull you back either. I can't do this for you. You have to do it for yourself. 
But what I can tell you is, if you fall off that cliff, you will break your neck. So please, 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 step back. You're perilously close to the edge of the cliff. Please, take a step back. Another, come on, you can do it. Yes, of course you can do it. Come on, you know, I can do it, you can do it. Come on, let's do it, let's do it together. This is all I can do for you. I can inspire you, I can motivate you, but you need to have the discipline. Huh? And you need to have the determination. In every way I can shape this up and dress it up, I tell you, do this. <laughs> no, do nothing else. If you're not doing this, then why bother doing anything else? Nothing else gives you the answer, nothing else gives you a solution, nothing else leaves you happiness. This is the only thing. All of the other things are because you're not doing this. See, isn't that the answer there? All of the other numerous things that you have to be doing and be engaged in are all because you're not doing the right thing. Do the right thing and you don't have to do any of the other things because they're all wrong. We do it simply for existence, our survival, hmm? because conventionally they are expected of us, so let's do it. And that's why I say, live by convention but don't become the convention. Live in accordance with convention, but don't become that. That would be such a shame. Okay, we're going to have to stop it there for today. We have Dakineyo to take part in. So who are you going to offer arms to today? Hmm? To the Swami says, I'll tell you what, when you see them, kill them. Hmm? So Guru Hansar will be going right at the front. First kill him. A hmm? <laughs> hundred and however many of us will be getting, getting there, kill each one of them. Hmm? The, the massacre. <laughs> and while you do that, you know, devise a strategy to commit suicide. <laughs> it, it's a parajika offense <laughs> to encourage someone to go and take their own life. So I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> okay. I didn't mean it in that way. So please don't go kill yourself, but kill yourself. <laughs> All right, let's do a transfer of merits and bring today's sermon to a close. <clears throat> Let us all take a moment then to transfer all the merits that we have all acquired by making infinite, by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem and listening to the Dhamma, engaging in very various meritorious deeds today. Let us first and foremost remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha, present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also not forget to transfer this message to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhansi, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarikas and the Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these maids and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and by the power of these maids, 
If any of them have been born in the woeful plains, may they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer these merits to that we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits to help them in achieve the ultimate bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those who offer the Mahasangha shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. By the power of these merits, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer in merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employees and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhadasasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way, and may by the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have who've been friends, family, relations, and those who have predeceased us, reminding ourselves that this infinitely long journey of Sansara, they have been friends and family to us and helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape, or form possible and available to them. By the power of these merits, may they free themselves if they have been born in any of the woeful plains and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they also attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who sacrifice their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation and make it possible for us to practice the path in peace and harmony. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have lost their lives in the wars, be they friend or foe. May they all rejoice in the merits that we have all acquired today. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, blizzards and so on. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, may they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may, by the power and blessings of all the mates we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahans on this blessed land. And finally, may by the power of all the mates we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Vahanse or an Arahat Teranin Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha himself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you all. Raga <laughs> 
सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार ममद सियलुलोक सियलु सत्यो निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी देश गिनी मोह गिनी जीवन सत निबान परम सुखे सुखित साधु साधु साधु